welcome listeners to season four, episode 21 of Drinking and Screaming, our season finale! Ah! A queer and feminist podcast about horror movies and cocktails. I'm Char, my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Kelly, my pronouns are they, them. To close off our fourth season, we'll be watching The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. But first, we have an inspired cocktail creation that we made to match the mood and themes of the movie. Well, Mad Lab Distilling created this drink with deliciousness in mind. Ooh, connotations (laughs) there. (laughs) This episode will contain discussion on violence, cannibalism, ableism, sexism, and misogyny. If any of these things are something that you need to not hear about today, feel free to skip this episode and we'll see you next season. So as I said, this week we are doing a Mad Lab Distilling sponsored drink. Yes. And Kelly, why don't you tell everybody about what we're enjoying today? So this is a Mad Dog Chocolate Malt, which uh, we didn't realize wasn't a mixed drink. It's actually a p- alcohol that's it's, yeah, from mixing and stuff. Yep. It's their <laughs> regular malt liqueur. But with chocolate. Yeah. So this is what's on the box or the on the box. This is what's on the back of the bottle. It's the middle of the day. We haven't even started drinking. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have taken our mad dog white single malt and infused it with carefully selected blend of cocoa and spices for our multi chocolate spirit that can be enjoyed on its own or as part of your favorite cocktail. Cheers. And this is their fourth batch. Nom, 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 nom. We are going to be enjoying it by itself. Yes. I didn't put ice in this. Uh, I did keep it in the fridge, though, so it is cold. And wow, it is a very easy to sip, but wow, it burns. Yep. That's um, that's a strong and you can definitely feel it. It's 40 percent, I think. So it's just like sipping, sipping whiskey. It's like the mix of the liquor uh, burn as well as the spice. Which is nice. The aftertaste is really, really good. Yeah. That's that's, uh, spicy, chocolatey. It's very Christmassy. I should have saved this for next season because that's when we have December. (laughs) Damn it. I also, whilst pouring it, forgot that it wasn't a mixed drink. So these are large and I would highly suggest that you sip it slowly. (laughs) As uh, again, it is not going to get watered down because there is no ice. Mm -hmm. And um Yep, that's strong. <laughs> it is really good, though. I am enjoying it. I don't. It's definitely like if if Kelly had this in a cup, I would assume it was a Kelly prepared drink. <laughs> it's so good on its own that it feels like it's already just a really strong cocktail. Um, it's also, it's also could have gone so good in our chocolate milk last <laughs> episode <laughs> be pretty strong um i don't like malt which is weird like i i mix it with like dr pepper or a and w um because like something about like the anise of the a and w and malt works well together but okay. this is like the chocolate spice kind of gets rid of that like malty flavor that i don't like uh and it's good good you're right it does taste like a kelly drink yeah and that is sure. all alcohol <laughs> So this week we watched The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which premiered on October 11th, 1974. I figured we should round out the season with a classic that we haven't seen yet. Mm. Um, If you want to hear any information on Kelly's thoughts before they saw the film, because this was their first time watching, you got to listen to the pre-fear, which is on our Patreon. But wait, 
<laughs> There's this more. Fear was already released everywhere, so everyone can get it on the action as a special gift of the end of our fourth season. Yeah. So the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was written by Kim Hankel and Toby Hooper, directed by Toby Hooper as well. It stars Marilyn Burns as teenage woman and sister Sally, Edwin Neal as the deranged hitchhiker, a.k.a. Nibbler. Really? Yeah. Alan Danzinger as friend Jerry and Paul Partain as wheelchair bound brother Franklin. The synopsis was written by our very own Kelly Wright. Hey, that's me. Whoa. And right before recording, they said, Shar, I can't wait for you to read it because I don't want to. <laughs> so here we go. After hearing that their grandfather's grave may have been vandalized, Sally, her brother Franklin, and their three friends, Kirk, Pam, and Jerry, go on a road trip to investigate. Along the way, they pick up a hitchhiker whose family works at the nearby slaughterhouse. After slashing his hand with Franklin's knife and burning a photo of him, the hitchhiker cuts Franklin's wrist with a shaving razor. The group kicks him out from the van and he smears his blood on the side of the vehicle. In need of gas, Kirk stops off at a small gas station that claims to have run dry. They get directions, buy some mystery meat, then drive towards the location of their grandfather's old home. Once there, Franklin becomes suspicious of the hitchhiker's intentions and tries to warn his horny friends before Kirk and Pam split off from the group to go swimming. <laughs> the two find an old farmhouse and plan to make a trade for some gas, which I'm adding in that I thought that was the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> the house seems empty, but after hearing strange pig noises, Kirk lets himself inside, as anyone would do, of course. He meets the business end of Leatherface's sledgehammer and Pam quickly follows after him. She finds that the house is adorned with macabre furniture made of human bones and flesh. She's captured by Leatherface, hooked in the basement and camped for five gens. I mean, hooked in the kitchen and forced <laughs> to watch her boyfriend be dismembered by a chainsaw. That was a Dead by Daylight reference. <laughs> Jerry leaves to search for the missing duo and is almost immediately met with a similar fate. With only Franklin and Sally left, they head off into the night looking for their missing friends. Leatherface finds them and we see Franklin's demise as he's hacked with a chainsaw and drops his flashlight. Sally is chased by Leatherface through the brush and is led back to the gas station. It's revealed that the owner is also evil! captures Sally and brings her back to the farmhouse. There we meet that he's the father of the hitchhiker and Leatherface. And with the addition of their grandfather, they have a sinister family meal, probably consisting of Sally's friends. The four of them torment Sally and nearly kill her with the hammer before she escapes, chased down by the hitchhiker and Leatherface. A semi-driver runs the hitchhiker over, kind of helps Sally before running out of the movie, and she leaps into the back of a pickup truck to escape. We're left with the image of Leatherface having a chainsaw tantrum with an idyllic sunrise behind him. <laughs> Yay. That was excellent. Great Thank job. You. <laughs> if you would like your synopsises to be featured in the episodes, email them to drinkingandscreaming at gmail.com and we'll feature you. We'll shout you out and read your lovely writing on the show. Yeah. Hit me with that trailer audio. What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. This is the movie that is just as real, just as terrifying as being there. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. 
<laughs> that tagline is something we should steal. <laughs> <laughs> Once you stop screaming, you'll start talking about yeah. it. That was just the movie. Yeah, that's what all the YouTube comments were saying when I was looking for this trailer, and they definitely were not wrong. It's funny because in the trailer, the announcer says, this is the movie that blah, 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 blah. But uh, yeah, this is just the movie. Yep. It showed everybody's death and gave you enough information to know what the movie's about. I think it's definitely one of, like, it's with slashers, you don't really care that you see people die in the trailer because that's kind of a given. But I disagree. Well, <laughs> because, tell me more. Because the only reason you watch slashers is to see how the people die. Ooh. The, I, would, I would argue that the story doesn't really matter. <laughs> but I feel like it's with how the people die, that's more for like your, your Friday the 13th, your Halloweens. Leatherface is just going to, they're going to be chainsawed. They're going to be hammered. That's it. But you wouldn't know that going into this movie. I guess this was the first time. Yeah, That's watching true. this trailer, you're like, one. well, I've seen everyone die now, so I guess I'll go watch the movie, question mark, <laughs> and then stop screaming and tell my friends about it. Yeah. I would say that the best part of that trailer was interlacing the like crime scene photography that they had at the beginning of the movie. Yes, which, to be fair, sort of uh, that interspersal of it, I made up a word there, um, <laughs> sort of took away the death. Did they die? They got hit in the head with a hammer. Who knows? Sure. <laughs> Let's go with that. I'm going to jump in here because speaking about all the classics, the Friday, the 13th, the, the Hellraisers, which we just watched the other day. Mm -hmm. um, this is a pretty scary movie. And I find that comparing it to other classics of the time of the like 70s, 80s, we got The Exorcist, Carrie, Halloween, um, and then even like comparing them to other series in the slasher genre of Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. I find that it's much more unsettling, much more scary, quote unquote, than the others that I listed. Mm -hmm. I find like it's not a slow burn. But it does take a while for the action to really ramp up. But there are moments of the fear that are very well paced throughout the film. Like we get the the opening shot of the desecrated grave that you mentioned in yeah. the synopsis. That was intense. It really sets the mood pretty early on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the whole hitchhiking scene is pretty early as well. Um talking about like the the hitchhiker coming in with that knife. Uh, but once after that scene, they get to the house and then it just starts and doesn't stop. I can't really put my finger on what it was about the beginning that was kind of off-putting. It was slower than the rest of the movie, but I don't know. Everything just kept happening to Franklin. And I thought it was weird that in this horror movie, it's like, look at all the things we can do to this man in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, and yes. then like, I don't, I, I don't know. It was a weird like setup for the movie. It kind of felt almost like they were trying to freak us out just for the sake of freaking us out. Yeah. With Franklin too, there was that whole opening. He goes to pee and we get like really weird shots of like very personal angles as this wheelchair bound man has to pee in a tin can provided by a friend. And then he falls. And it's kind of wacky. It's like, ha ha, we can do shit to this man in a wheelchair. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. 
it was less like life is so hard for him and he's the odd man out. It was like, hey, we're going to creep you out with like creepy corpse imagery and a person in a wheelchair falling down. Yeah, Um, it was very odd. But once like, yeah, once they actually got into the house, things started kicking off. Mm -hmm. It was for me, it was the weird, like slow burn tormenting this man. That was weird. This actually is sort of I'll jump around in my points here because I wanted to also talk about the history of ableism in horror. And I am definitely not an expert, but I do. It's something that's very prevalent in a lot of horror films, including obviously the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which features super poor depictions of disabilities and people who are neurodivergent. And it's often a lot of times seen in the killers and monsters of the films. And I feel like we're so conditioned as a society, damn it, society, (laughs) making us feel like these people are the other. And then we see them be characterized so poorly. I read online that like, cause talking about Leatherface, he's definitely depicted in this way, which I read was based on the actor's decision. Toby Hooper told the actor of Leatherface that he could flesh out the character however (laughs) he wanted. (laughs) Um, And so the actor went to various mental institutions, followed people and tried to mimic their uh, movements and the way that they spoke as accurately as possible. And I read that people thought it was pretty not offensive, like um, people thought that it was very accurate and I didn't, it didn't sit right with me. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, there's a difference between like mimicking someone's movements and actions and knowing why they're doing it and understanding how to deliver that with a baseline of understanding what they're thinking and integrity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like of all the, the killers, you could definitely label Leatherface as like a victim of their surroundings yes but also there's so many real evil people out in the world that the idea that these this family is evil because of their mental illness which is definitely what is being portrayed is very weak yeah i think that it would have been more scary if they were neurotypical villains that just wanted to eat people you know they put on a face made of human skin and they're like let's go to town And I just wanted to take a moment to call out how fucking annoying it is that so much there is so much ableism in all horror. There's so much. We talk about this all the time, uh, Kelly and I off camera about how like horror in video games is often set in like asylums. Yeah. uh, Or other places like that. uh, Hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. That's Like, like my least favorite thing is when you when you hear that there's going to be a mental institution level yeah, and then the moment you step in, there's like screaming and howls and stuff and And people being violent. And it's like most people in a asylum aren't like violent people. Yeah. They just have like conditions that make either them unsafe to themselves or people around them. Yeah. Ah. So I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that. And uh, I definitely want to do more research about that in the future. Yeah. I'm looking at you, David Cage. (laughs) <laughs> I had to look up who made heavy rain and all the other ones. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent yeah. of the time. If you go to like a mental hospital in David Cage games, it's because it's a vent violent mental hospital and it's scary. Ah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was definitely the case, especially like when they pick up the hitchhiker, you can clearly tell that he has like autism or something. Mm-hmm. 
And then that automatically every one of his actions is some sort of violent action towards them or some sort of like sadistic action because of that. And going with also like the whole realm of autism, like people use stimming to soothe themselves, um, like do repetitive motions, all that sort of thing. And then that is often taken in horror to be showing to be shown as something to be afraid of. This person is not normal. They're othered. Yeah. The horror ticks. Exactly. And then or like you just see a wheelchair in an empty space with like an open window and it's just you're conditioned to be like, ooh, this is unsettling. I mean, I always thought it was unsettling because I'm like, oh, man, I hope someone doesn't need that wheelchair and doesn't have it. Oh, okay. I'm always like better than me. (laughs) I'm always like somebody in a wheelchair has lost their wheelchair and is somewhere in this space without it. Yeah. And then another one of my points, I want to go back to that hitchhiker scene because I it's something that like is very prevalent in my mind as as a kid. It was always like never pick up hitchhikers. You never know what they're going to do. Also, never hitchhike because you never know what the drivers are going to do. Just stay away from cars. You'll be fine. (laughs) But um, why did Franklin just have this pocket knife? He's like playing with it in the backseat. And this is not victim blaming like it's your own fault for getting cut. But it's fucking creepy. Like he's sitting with this knife playing around with it in the backseat after they pick this guy up. And then the hitchhiker brings out his own knife and everyone gets scared. But I thought that that was pretty double standardy. Like if I was going to hitchhike and got picked up and the guy in the backseat was fiddling with a knife, that's fucking scary. That's a whole other movie right there. Yeah, especially when you're outnumbered. Yeah, there were so many of them. Um, I mean, as for having a pocket knife, I definitely had one. Um, it was not for self-defense or anything. It was a utility thing, Mm. especially when you're camping. Um, but it definitely framed him as having like a fascination with this knife. Yes. Um, and then the fact that the hitchhiker had a fascination with the knife upset them at that point. That was creepy, but they all wanted to play with Franklin's knife. Yeah. Like Sally had lost it and all this other stuff because she had wanted to see it. So I just thought that was so weird. And then also was it ever explained what symbol he drew with his own blood on the van after cutting himself with that knife? Not once. Okay. I assume it was almost like generic ritual stuff. I don't know. They're like fascination with like totems and um, ritual for rituals sure. was very un unexplained. It was yeah. like the, the director just wanted to have symbolism, but didn't know why. Yeah, I guess for me, I thought it was just a way of them like to mark their victims. Yeah. But then at the gas station, the door was open of the van, which was a sliding door. So the symbol was covered, which then by the time the owner of the gas station came out, they wouldn't have seen it. So I thought, okay, maybe not. I, I don't know. Yeah. That was a weird thread that I thought they could do a little bit more with. Um, but still interesting. Yeah. I mean, it could be that he saw it at some point and the blood was just supposed to mark like, Hey dad, I found some victims for you. Follow these people. Follow these people. But they don't even get followed. They end up walking into someone's fucking home. Yeah. Which they did know where it was. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean. I th- I think like, I know that like, especially like deep South states, I think we learned this from the last ex- exorcist. The idea that um, like a cult is very popular down there. Yeah. So it could be that like the family is just obsessed with the occult but without really having like groundings in it. 
There was also that friend who was reading the the star signs, the astrology in the van. So maybe it was just an added layer of horror on the movie for the audience. She was doing astrology. That's basically Satan's work. She deserved to die. Yeah. She had a beautiful pair, a beautiful outfit of short shorts and this like cool backless top. She deserved to die. Yeah. Nobody was smoking weed, but they still all deserve to die. Yeah. Very weird. Okay, I have two more points. All right. Uh, I want to talk about the ending of this movie. I thought that it was very scary, very hard to watch. Um, And I find like we don't often talk about films actually scaring us on this show. But this is something that if I had seen as a kid, it definitely would stick with me. This is definitely a humans are scary movie. Yeah. So something to scare Char for sure. I thought that starting at where... Sally escapes and she's running and she gets to the gas station. That was when it started to get really off putting to me. Like the dad in the car with her with a burlap sack over her head and he's like hitting her or not even hitting, like jabbing her with a broken broomstick. And you can see that he's doing it so hard and she's screaming. And then later he mentions at the dinner table that he doesn't have the joy of killing. So somebody else better do it. I'm like, what? Yeah. (laughs) He also, his mannerisms are very back and forth. Like he goes from like, oh, don't worry, it's fine. Like you have nothing to be afraid of. And then like smiling as he's hitting her. Yeah. Which again, probably trying to emphasize some sort of mental illness that they think he has or that they think they're appropriately representing. Yeah, it was just, I really don't like that. And then at the table, of course, it's incredibly awful. They do these like intense close up shots of Sally's eyes as she's, they're so wide and she's just staring back and forth at people trying to get somebody to help her, begging for her life, screaming. The screaming was so real. And I, it just, it was a lot. Yeah. And then she finally escapes. She makes it out alive. She is a final girl. Sally is a final girl. And she gets onto the back of this pickup and she's like drenched in her own blood, which spoiler scary fact, a lot of her, that blood was actually her real blood because she got a lot of injuries while she was running. Ow. Um, and then she gets on the back of this truck and she's laughing, crying screaming and you just know (laughs) that she's like forever going to be impacted by this event. And it was very relatable for me. Yeah. That like being in shock and not knowing what to do. And yeah. From a cinematic standpoint, that scene now with like me being separated from the actual like uh, horror of it was kind of annoying how many cuts and the length of the scream was. Okay. But I think definitely like, if I if I was able to put myself in that moment, like it would be more scary how long she was there for and how like emphasized it was that she wasn't able to escape. Yeah. And they were sort of like feeding off of her screams. And yeah. But for me, like just from a, purely from a cinematic standpoint, I was like, this is going on a bit long and that's, nothing has happened. That's fair. I don't know. It was intense, like power dynamic for sure. Yeah. Do you I talk at all about uh, the grandfather in your points? Uh, not really, no. 
So at the table, they like force her finger to be cut open to like feed the grandfather. And he's like sucking on her thumb. Yeah. And it's very unsettling to me. And then they're like trying to make the grandfather be able to hit her, like continue the cycle of violence. But he's so old that he can't do what he used to do. And uh, it was so there's something about it. I thought it was a really interesting and awful story. (laughs) I think we've definitely talked about this before of like my acknowledging my privilege that humans scare me less than you. Yes. Um, Where it's like, I, I mean, in that situation, I feel like I would be freaked out, but the idea of, of humans scares me less than you because I don't know, humans have their limits to, to me, mm-hmm. whereas demons and ghosts do not. But Like the hitchhiker gets killed at the end of this yeah, by a car, you know? They get hit by a car, they're dead. <laughs> you hit a ghost, it doesn't die. But um, yeah, I definitely acknowledge that like I was less afraid of that scene because of my privilege of, of being less afraid of humans. So my, my, anal- my anal- an- analysis is purely cinematic. <laughs> And then my last point is actually not a point by me, but a point by Joe Core. Uh, I'm going to read a snippet of their article, which is available on medium.com. And it's called Slaughterhouse Sexuality, Queering the Sawyer Family and Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What was their name? Joe Core, C-O-R. No, no, no. The Sawyer Family was their name? Yes. Oh. The Sawyer's dysfunctionally functional take on the nuclear family unit could not exist without falling back on tried and tired gendered roles and stereotypes. The functional family unit is, above all, a heteronormative one. The nuclear family is not passively heteronormative, but actively queer exclusive. The family in Texas Chainsaw are not just a family unit, but they are a grotesque parody of the nuclear family depicted as striving to attain something that mirrors traditional family values, even when they will fall always short of the mark. Papa Sawyer runs a business that casts him as the breadwinner or masculine father figure. Drayton Sawyer is the difficult teenager and Leatherface, most crucially of all, is the matriarch, the homeowner, the cook, the domestic goddess. The pivotal dinner scene in the film resembles a monstrous recreation of the well-known painting by Norman Rockwell, depicting an idyllic Thanksgiving dinner. Though it is indeed hilarious to consider that from Leatherface's perspective, Texas Chainsaw is a home invasion movie. The joke does reveal something crucial about the film's political commentary. By parodying these trappings of the conventional American family, Toby Hooper is not only jabbing in the ribs of mid-20th century American patriotism, but it is also inadvertently revealing the facade that is heteronormative domesticity. The Sawyers desperately want to be a normal American family, and they are house-proud and self-sufficient as the American dream would stipulate. But in attempting to cling to some semblance of respectability, the Sawyers, in fact, drive themselves deeper into social abjection. Hmm. And really interesting. That was definitely way better than anything I could say about that. <laughs> and I was like, I know that someone has to have written about the thoughts that are in my brain that I can't quite work out. So again, this was from Joe Core's article available on medium.com. Slaughterhouse sexuality, queering the Sawyer family and Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, it's very interesting that especially in the, the dinner scene, Leatherface dons like a more feminine skin suit yes the pretty woman is what it's called and And then when he's like every time he's like defending the home he goes into the more masculine one like he wears the suit and tie to chase down sally at the end Mm -hmm. which now that i think about it the time 
of her jumping out the window and running away and Leatherface chasing after her. He has no time to change into that suit. I think he's wearing it. I think the pretty he still has the like pretty woman face, but he's wearing the suit at dinner. Oh, I'm not sure if he changed. I think the mask is what changes. The mask looks the same. I'm looking at a picture now. It does look like he's wearing the pretty woman face. Oh, okay, great. Um, But he does in the middle section of the film, he's wearing this like older woman, this like matronly outfit and skin face. That is definitely him trying to be the the homeowner, the 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 domestic housewife, if you will, of this yeah. family. I mean, even when they go and actually find him for the first time, he's wearing like a pink shirt and an apron. Yeah. Kind of like the the wife at home preparing dinner. Yeah. So there's some real interesting aspects of the queerness of this film and the subversion that they're trying to do and like it was very interesting the 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 need to stick with that nuclear family ideology uh, when clearly they're square pegs trying to fit in a round hole. Yeah, I mean, it's also not lost on me the fact that um, Leatherface has the least agency amongst all the family and is assigned the feminine role in the family. Yes, yes, totally. And uh, that's it for my points. Nice. We're going to take a moment to talk about our socials and sponsors. Hello, everybody. Season four of Drinking and Screaming is coming to a close, and we want to hear from you. Fill out our audience feedback survey at bit.ly slash DAS survey 2021, all lowercase, and let us know your thoughts and ideas about the show. What should we do for our hundredth episode? Tell us. Make your voice heard. This season of Drinking and Screaming is sponsored by American Nightmare Candle Company. Remember that you can get 10% off your order on their Etsy page with code DRINKANDSCREAM or buy from their new website, AmericanNightmareCandles.com. Bring the horror into your home with a handmade soy wax candle from American Nightmare Candle Company. Available for purchase at Etsy.com slash Nightmare Candle Co. or AmericanNightmareCandles.com. They burn so consistently. They smell lovely. And they're horror themed. What more could you want? Check (laughs) them out. We love them. You should love them too. Evil Amy sent us two packs of playing cards (gasps) that are horror film themed. We got The Exorcist and Stephen King's It. So these would work perfectly if you wanted to play a horror movie drinking game. They have a wide selection of playing cards to choose from. Get yours. They ship globally at EvilAmy'sTerrorShop.com and use code EVIL10, all caps, for 10% off your purchase. This season of Drinking and Screaming would not be possible. I just realized that both of these, I make the same emphasis on this season of Drinking and Screaming would not be possible without the support from Mad Lab Distillery. Thank you so much for your amazing and consistent support season after season. Today, we enjoyed your chocolate spiced Mad Lab malt liquor, uh, and it was delicious and definitely has hit me as I am done. <laughs> I still, we film these at the end, so I have a little bit left. I've been slowly sipping. Mm. Very delicious, very, very delicious. You can get their amazing collection of products at madlabdistilling.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at drink underscore scream, on Facebook at drink and scream, and you can email us at drinkingandscreaming at gmail.com. For more information and to buy some merch, go to drinkingandscreaming.com. <laughs> going to be a lot of chainsaw in this episode. <laughs> I mean, it's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But is it one word or is it two words? We'll never know. <laughs> that means 
friends, it's time for Whispers from Beyond. I don't think we don't have sound effects for this segment. <laughs> I thought there was like whispering sound. Oh yeah. But you were doing, it sounded like you were doing lightning. I was doing whoosh, 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 I guess that could sound kind of We have a new review, and it's a bit of a downer, to be honest. But <laughs> when I say that I'll read your reviews on this podcast, I mean it, unless you're going to throw in some homophobic bullshit. So this is a three-star review from KP2233 from Apple Podcast Canada. Thank you, KP, for reviewing us. And they say it's a great time filler. Hosts are sweet. Wish they were more organized, adding a plot retelling structure and cleaning up the likes in their dialogue. They come off very young, but charming kids. Haha, <laughs> joke's on you. I'm almost 30. <laughs> I'm a kid. <laughs> I'm curious if what they mean is like us retelling the plot as we go, because I've definitely been part of podcasts like that where... Um, the entire podcast is so then this happened let's talk about that yeah. this happens let's talk about that which is something that we actively wanted to not do yeah or if they are listening to earlier episodes before we actually had a full synopsis breakdown yeah and we it, it was definitely I think it was in our audience feedback survey between one and two that people still wanted to have a bit more thorough of a synopsis rather than just the like four lines from the back of a VHS cassette. Yeah, exactly. So, Especially for people that don't watch horror movies and just want to hear our lovely voices. And there were many more of you than we thought. So <laughs> we implemented that for sure. Um, but thank you for the feedback. We always are trying to better the show. Uh, I will try and self-police my likes more I in the future. I won't. <laughs> I think that's also very funny of like our gender of like the more masculine person being more confident. And I'm like, I have to fix this, please. <laughs> I'm I'm very confident that, you know, I'm in my 30s. That's so also it's the age, the wisdom. I'm only 26. My uh, my vocabulary is set. And unless <laughs> I went and did like a speech therapist or something, I this is how I sound, y'all. <laughs> This is how I'm going to sound for a while. Do you have thoughts? I would love to hear them. I do. So yours were very smart think good. Thank you. Um, and mine are going to be more sort of along the lines of analyzing the film from a filmmaking standpoint. As I find you, this is something that you're very, very good at. And I'm always intrigued by what you have to say. It's so I can't wait. Because I, I have a lot of attention to detail, but bad human skills. <laughs> So I don't care about the human condition. How, how that camera look. <laughs> um, so right off the bat, I think I mentioned this immediately after we watched it, that the subtlety to the violence was actually incredibly off-putting, but in a good way. Yes. So yes. The, the first of the friends that dies is Kirk, who walks into the back and kind of had it coming because he broke into someone's house. But the, the like, immediacy and subtlety of getting hit over the head with the, the hammer is so realistic. And he's just like on the floor, like twitching incapacitated. and incapacitated. Like, yeah. yeah. But there would be no buildup or dramatic tension before getting hit in the head real life by a hammer. Um, especially if you are breaking into someone's home. So it was a, it was a good start to everyone being murdered that it just sort of happened and no one made a big deal of it. Yeah. Um, which made, it also made the like inhumanity of Leatherface more apparent and more immediately clear. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious if it's like, not to jump in here, sorry, but 
the idea of just walking into someone's home, I'm like, is it just because it was more that time? Like that was more commonplace to do stuff like that? No, it's America. (laughs) (laughs) From my point of view, it's America. It's so weird. I can't. My brain is like, what? He's a white dude. He's pretty confident that he's not immediately going to get shot. Yeah, but then he does. Yeah, which is just proving how dumb he is. <laughs> but um, yeah, it wasn't. I feel like the the ramp up of violence got more cinematic as mm-hmm. it went. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, sort of climaxing and being chased through the brush by Leatherface. You do love a good chase scene. I do like a good chase scene. But like even being hooked in the kitchen... There was no buildup. She just kind of got lifted up and hoisted onto the hook. So easily, yeah. Just like in Dead by Daylight. Yeah. So I wanted to praise the movie for doing that, where it, it seemed very cheap. It also had a big impact, I feel. Yeah. My next point is sort of about the motivations of the killers. Well, there you go. That's a human-y thing. R- writing. Writing motivations. (laughs) So the connection between the slaughterhouse and the murders is very well implemented. We didn't get like a Jason Voorhees, like he was drowned in the lake while the kids were having the sex or like, I'm a murderer who was chased by the cops. And the last thing I found was this doll. And now I want to get turned back into a human again. It was sort of just throughout the movie we'd been dropped hints that a slaughterhouse exists we'd heard like motive or like methods of killing cows and and stuff like that but we were never explicitly told that like this family of butchers went mad and started killing and eating humans like they did with the cows and we were sort of just allowed to interpret that ourselves mm-hmm. and like all the mention of like the grandfather w- was at the slaughterhouse i think you kind of by that point either forgot about the slaughterhouse or, I don't know, just didn't really connect the two. And so the idea that like, oh, wait a minute, the family is doing what we've done to cows and it's only scary because it's humans. Yeah. And like the motive sort of exposed itself more organically, I feel, than having like an exposition machine walk into the scene and start explaining things. Yes. They did the exposition machine at the beginning and that was it. Yeah. To set the tone. But it's funny that you mentioned that they're doing the same thing to cows as to people because, uh, or you know what I mean? The opposite. Yeah. But um, this film has been credited for causing Guillermo del Toro to become vegetarian. Oh, and also a lot of other people. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. Uh, I, yeah, that's a whole other podcast is my struggle with, I really want to be vegetarian, but I am bad and can't do it. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Um, yeah, I just, I, I like that it was, um, that especially paired with the murders was very subtle compared to what I think we yeah. were seeing around this time from slasher flicks. Very nuanced. It was like the, the, what is it? The guardian at the gate, the old man on the bike, the, the gas, like the gas station owner in cabin in the woods was the guardian at the gate. Whereas the, the gas station owner in this one was one of the, the murderers. Killer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, I guess you would call it a subversion of tropes to not have an exposition Ooh. machine. Mm-hmm. Anyways. I thought that was cool. I agree. It was very, very interesting to watch. And it made that second half when she gets back to the gas station that much worse. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, this guy should be trusted because he's the he's the trusted gas station owner. Nope. Oops. Nope. Oopsies. Um, They're all related. It's all connected. It's all connected. See? Charlie Day in the back room with the pinboard. 
my final point is that this movie suffers from mumbling. <laughs> it seemed to be very popular around this time, and I don't know why. Um, I don't know if it's a problem with like picking up audio in an exterior setting or there was a it's all basically outside. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of fucking cicadas uh, chirping in this area. <laughs> and it was hot. But I find that a lot of older movies suffer from this problem where like if you don't have subtitles, the the actors not enunciating becomes a big problem. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. It's it set. It's just got a weird taste to it. Watching movies with this mumbliness to it. It's like it's kind of just telling me that what they're saying either doesn't matter or I'm just going to have to live without knowing what they're saying. Um, Maybe it's a way to try and make you try to actively like they want the viewer to actively listen and it's supposed to draw you in more so that the scares are more impactful. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) It comes off as bad acting to me, though. Like you can you can tell sort of the difference between like a stage actor who has to fucking shout or isn't going to be heard. Yeah. And a, I don't know, new actor who's only starting out in movies. I love that your opinion of stage actors is so much higher. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, because that's what I am. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you always hear like, oh, yeah, they're a classically trained performer or like a Shakespearean performer. And Mm -hmm. it basically just means they know how to act. (laughs) Um, Tell me how you really feel. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if it's like just a symptom of the times where either, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's like a lower opinion of movies. So they focused less on what the dialogue was. I don't think that's true. Or it's just simply growing pains of trying to figure out how to actually have actors be audible in movies without sounding fake. Yeah. I think it's that. Yeah. It's also the, just the technology was not what it is today. And these people are performing as characters that are real people that wouldn't, it is that realism of like people fucking mumble. You know how many times I have to say what to you when we're talking sometimes? Yeah, but there's like an, uh, there's a difference between like, this is realistic and this works for the medium. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. There's like, there's, I hear that for sure. Yeah. There's so many concessions that you have to make in different mediums to make sure that it works for that medium. Like you could, Paint a painting that's uh, color-wise perfectly representative of reality, but it looks muddy and the subject isn't focused or anything like that. Um, or you can make a video game that feels realistic to jumping and running, but the character feels sluggish and slow and it's not fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think enunciating a bit more than you normally would in reality is one of those concessions. Although we did watch Hellraiser and the whole thing felt like a fucking soap opera. So... Spoilers. That's going to be our bonus episode for the patrons. Oh, okay. Well, spoilers for that episode. Got to find that middle ground, y'all, where it doesn't sound like you're talking to the movie so that the scene focuses on you and what you're saying versus how they going down. Yeah, you've convinced me. Yeah. Um. Well, that's it. Uh, hey, y'all, there's a lot of flesh and bone in this movie. So I wanted to give you a little break. Uh, the Reconomicon this episode is uh, a Kindle. There's no flesh involved. Ooh. No face screaming at you. Just a Kindle that when you read it, it steals your soul and you go to hell. Can it be a Kobo? Because that's mine. Sure. So it's time <laughs> to click and load the Reconomicon. 
this week is The Last House on the Left from 1972. There is a big trigger warning for sexual violence in this film, but it does have a very similar tone to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it involves some very gruesome deaths. Uh, Very, very intricate movie. If you haven't seen it, it is one of the classics, I say. Uh, But huge violence against women. Still very interesting film. The Last House on the Left from 1972. My recommendation was um, written by Char. Uh, <laughs> hey, you said it when we did our preview, and I was going to put your the one that's in yours on mine, but I was like, nope, Kelly's going to want to use it. So Char wrote that I should recommend The Hills Have Eyes from 1977. Because it's what you would have recommended. Because <laughs> I didn't remember that these were different. <laughs> um, if you listen to the pre-fear, you will understand what I mean. I don't remember particularly enjoying the original Hills Have Eyes, but I definitely um, was scared of the concept of whatever one came out when I was a kid. Uh, so go check it out. It's a classic. That's all. I, I think it also suffers from mumbly syndrome. Yes, definitely. Uh, and that's the Hills Have Eyes from 1977. <laughs> scaredy facts. Wow, you went into that one raw. I did. It was a cold open to scaredy facts this time, y'all. This is the part of the podcast where we invite you into our non-heteronormative family. Yay! To watch some horror movies, cuddle up in bed, and read some trivia facts so that you understand more about the fact that it was a movie and not as scary as you think it should be, because it wasn't reality, regardless of what the narrator of this movie says. <laughs> I did the scaredy facts this week. I feel like it's been a while. It's nice to, to, to settle back into it. It's been a while. I have a quick question, though, before yes. you start. Do you talk about a movie called The Return of Texas Chainsaw Massacre? No. Because as I was scrolling... I just found out that apparently it's got Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger in it. So we're watching that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Interesting. No, I do not. But I will start off with the budget, which is very annoying that IMDb has changed all of their things. So what I do have is an interesting security fact about the budget, which was the film's original budget was 60,000 USD. Wow. During the editing process, the filmmakers incurred an additional 80000 in costs, requiring that they sell off portions of their ownership in the film's royalties Ooh. Uh, to have that final budget that was enough for them to get their project done. Gross worldwide for the full franchise. Now, there are a lot of Texas Chainsaws, but the full franchise is $252 million. Wow. Yeah. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Not as good as the one billion from The Conjuring that we mentioned. Toss, toss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I have an update. Do you want me to save it for the next time we do a Conjuring yes, movie? Please. Okay, cool. Okay. I have to start off with this one. Contrary to popular belief, this film is not a true story. What? Okay. There are many, many contradictory uh, points about this, not only in the IMDb trivia, but also just plaguing the Internet. But I am a detective. So, my friends, I have information for you. This film was filmed from 15th of July, 1973 to the 14th of August of that same year. But the opening narrative claims that the real events took place on 18th of August, 1973. So it's impossible for the film to have been based on events that had not happened at the time of filming. So there you go. All of you people who think that you knew of the real Leatherface that was in jail and whatever. Literally, people have said this. You're wrong. <laughs> 
Italian Spider-Man surprise Jeff. <laughs> Marilyn Burns, uh, who plays Sally. Uh, oh, I, I said this already. She cut herself on a lot of the branches quite badly. So a lot of her blood in the final scene on her body and clothes is her real blood. Oof. Wait, so they filmed the final scene immediately after filming her running through the undergrowth? Um, no, but it stained her all of her costume and oh, all that. Okay. Um, this was a scaredy fact that I didn't include, but she had multiples of that outfit so that she was able to wash it. But then at a laundromat, people stole some of her clothes. Yeah. And so then she had to go and buy one additional shirt. That was the remaining shirt, the only one they had left. Uh, and she had to wear that one for the rest of filming. Ooh. Surprisingly, the film is one of the least bloody horror films of all time. This is because Toby Hooper intended to make the movie for a PG rating mm. by keeping violence moderate, language mild, and having most of the horror implied off screen rather than shown in great detail on screen. However, this plan had actually backfired and made the film even more horrifying because despite cutting and repeated submissions, the ratings board insisted on an X rating. And it wasn't until the film received the R rating when Hooper gave up and released it as an R rated film. They say fuck a lot, don't they? I don't think so. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought they did. It's also like the ratings board said, there's so much gore. And Toby Hooper's like, there really isn't. Not to be <laughs> contrary, but I know how much fake blood we had to make for this movie. And there was not that much. We didn't have enough money for fake blood. Yeah. So we had to use real blood. The soundtrack contains no sounds from musical instruments. There are some featured copyright music that they had the rights to, but otherwise all sounds were animals that you would hear in a slaughterhouse. Ooh. The close-up of Leatherface cutting his leg on the chainsaw was the very last shot to be filmed. The actor had a metal plate over his leg, which was then covered with a piece of meat and a blood bag to make it realistic. But his scream was the actor's genuine scream of pain as the chain repeatedly hit the metal plate, causing intense friction that heated the metal so hot that it burned his leg. Wait, he had the metal... On touching his leg? Yeah. Bad stunt coordinator there. <laughs> this is the epitome of awful male actors. Hey. Uh, but thankfully, nothing sexual or harassment involved, but just genuine piece of shit. So after getting into the old age makeup, John Dugan decided that he did not ever want to go through the process again, meaning that all scenes with him had to be filmed in the same session before he could take the makeup off. The entire process took 36 hours, five of which took to put the makeup on. During a brutal summer heat wave where the average temperature was over 100 degrees, with a large portion of it spent filming the dinner scene with him wearing a heavy suit and necktie, sitting in a room filled with dead animals and rotting food with no air conditioning or electric fans. Everyone later recalled that the stench from the rotting food and people's body odor was so terrible that some crew members passed out or became sick from the smell. Edwin Neal, who played the hitchhiker, claimed filming that scene was the worst time of my life, and I had been in Vietnam with people trying to kill me. So I guess that shows how bad it was. <laughs> but um, those they were real animals that they had uh, bought from a veterinarian. 
They were real dead animals featured. There were real rotting meat was there. They had no AC, no air ventilation. And this was all because the actor was like, you know, getting in this makeup really sucks and I'm not going to do it again. So let's spend, how much was it? 36 straight hours yeah. filming. That's like. Because cut, you're a piece of shit. It's like <laughs> when cutting corners causes a bigger problem than just doing it outright. This scene was a huge problem point. Um, people, it's like uh, infamous in the film industry of how awful the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was to film. And it's largely because of this scene. Yeah, I could see that. I hope he didn't get to work again after this. But, you know, knowing Hollywood, he did. <laughs> Probably went on to become more famous than any of the female actors. Yeah. Now let's cut to more male actors being awful. And this time it is violence towards women. Ooh. Yay. Gunnar Hansen uh, is Leatherface. Recall shooting the sequence where they cut Sally's finger and try feeding the blood to grandpa. The tube that shot the fake blood kept clogging, meaning that it didn't work properly and the scene had to be stopped. And finally, after several takes without the tube working, Hansen just decided to slice Marilyn Burns' finger open live on camera. Mm. And the reason was, he explains, at this point, we were insane. I mean, this is because of that guy making them film for 36 hours. He proceeds to explain his only desire at this this point in shooting was to get the film done. He didn't care about his fellow actors' well-being, and this sequence was shot in the back end of a 27 hour work day. He also notes there isn't much acting going on in the dinner scene because everyone was very fucked up. Yeah. I feel like you could have just um, cut, shot that scene later because the grandpa isn't actually in that shot and seeing the grandpa sucking on the finger, you don't see any blood come out. Yeah, true. But uh, I let me and, and I quote at this point, we were insane. So sure, that's that's that just waves it away. Yeah. <laughs> Totally fine. Due to the low budget, Gunnar Hansen had only one shirt to wear as Leatherface. The shirt had been dyed so it couldn't be washed. Hansen had to wear it for four straight weeks of filming in the hot and humid Texas summer. By the end of the shoot, no one wanted to stand near Hansen or sit next to him during breaks to eat lunch because his clothing smelled so bad. And I'm sure it's that reason and not the fact that he decided to slice his coworker's finger open. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Last of the scaredy facts uh, is that Gunnar Hansen originally turned down the role of Leatherface due to the sheer brutality of the plot. But Marilyn Burns, who was friends with him at the time, actually convinced him to take on the role. And that was Sally. So maybe there's a bit of a friendship there. And they kind of knew as actors and friends that he could do what he did. But I'm not going to speak for anyone. And honestly, it makes me think badly of you. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, if again, if like as an actor, if we were having problems and I consented to you just slicing my finger, then sure. But like I've been in scenes where on stage, I'm like, you can really slap me instead of us like dealing with a kerfuffle of stage slaps. And that is something that a lot of people in stage combat disagree with that uh, idea and like highly discourage people from doing that. You should just be good enough to perform the fake slap as if it were real but that's a far cry from literally cutting into someone yeah and that's not even one of the worst instances of this so yeah but um yeah i mean hollywood what are you gonna do Mm -hmm. chainsaw facts (laughs) (laughs) 
The chainsaw used in this film was a poulon. I hope I'm saying that right. 245A with a piece of black tape covering the Poulon logo in order to avoid a possible lawsuit. Nice. I also have two car facts for you. The van that they drive is a 1972 Ford Club Wagon E100. And the truck that runs down and kills the hitchhiker at the end is a 1961 Peterbilt 351. Nice. We don't really talk about it, but that van or that um, semi is throughout the entire movie. I'm pretty sure that's the semi that spills the mud that makes uh, Franklin fall. Uh, there's a point when they pass a semi that looks exactly the same and it's the semi that hits uh, oh. the hitchhiker, which as I'm saying, this is probably just because they Budget. could only get access to one semi. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. But no, I didn't realize that. That's cool. I'm really sad. That was the last scaredy facts of the season. Oh, my God. I'm so emotional. <laughs> Let's wrap up. What are your final thoughts? My final thoughts come after hearing those scaredy facts. Um, I don't want to, again, not trying to spoil Hellraiser, but there's an entirely different tone that I got from the scaredy facts. And I'm more and more becoming unforgiving of shitty behavior behind the scenes. Even if it makes for a good movie, it's not worth it. So just keep that in mind. If you're going to make a movie, don't be an asshole or I will roast you. Yeah. My final thought is just tooting my own horn that we're at over 40,000 listens on Drinking and Screaming. Thank you all so much for listening, for being with us on our quest to complete queer and feminist reviews of horror films. This is amazing, astounding. When we started this, we never could have dreamed of what we've achieved. And that's all because of you. Yeah. So thank you. I also want to remind everybody to not forget, fill out our audience feedback survey at bit.ly slash DAS survey 2021. You can find the link in the show notes and on our social media as well. We're going to have a bit of a break. So you've got some time. Please let us know what we can do to help you enjoy the show better, to make the show the best it can be for season five. Holy cow. (laughs) Season five. We're going to kindergarten, (laughs) y'all. Well, that's been the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a movie about Leatherface being the master of disguise. We'll be kicking off season five of Drinking and Screaming on September 20th, 2021 by watching The Grudge from 2004. And remember, always scream responsibly. Listening to Drinking and Screaming. Drinking and Screaming is produced and edited by Charlene Bear. Our sound engineer and logo designer is Kelly Wright. And it's hosted by, yep, you guessed it, Kelly Wright and Charlene Bear. For bonus episodes, Patreon poll voting privileges, and exclusive rewards, become a patron at patreon.com slash drink and scream. Want a shout out? Review us on Apple Podcasts and we'll read your review live on the show. For more information, check out our website, drinkingandscreaming.com. 